I want to welcome everybody to today's talk by Christian Gledich. Today's talk is sponsored by the Program of Statistics and Methodology here at Ohio State University, the ITV program in Interactive um, Advanced Political Methodology, and the Mershon Center here at Ohio State University. I'm David Darmafall, and I'm the Senior Fellow in the Program in Statistics and Methodology here at Ohio State. We're very happy to have Christian uh, Gledich here today. Christian is really at the forefront in applying spatial econometrics to questions in political science. His book, All International Politics is Local, The Diffusion of Conflict, Integration, and Democratization, was published by the University of Michigan Press in 2002. Christian is an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of California, San Diego, is the research director for international relations at the Institute for Global Conflict and Cooperation at UCSD, and is also a research associate at the Center for the Study of Civil War at the International Peace Research Institute. Christian's uh, publications, again, in addition to the book, have appeared in multiple journals, including the American Political Science Review, the American Journal of Political Science, International Studies Quarterly, the Journal of Conflict Resolution, Political Analysis, the Annals of the Association of American Geographers, and several edited volumes. He's a recipient of multiple grants from the National Science Foundation and has been the recipient of the Rudolf Wildeman Prize in 2001, APSA's Helen Dwight Reed Award in 2000, and the 2002 Warren Miller Prize for the best article in political analysis. And without further ado, I introduce Christian Gledge, who will be speaking on transnational dimensions of civil war. Thank you, Mike Christian. Thank you, David. So let's say, do I need to do anything in particular to get the uh, overheads to display? So you can just go back and forth between these two if you want to see the remote side. First of all, I'd like to thank for the invitation to come and present in this seminar series. I don't have the benefit of a uh, Big Ten education. But I feel a little bit partial to Ohio State since I spent a summer here at the uh, political psychology program in 1997. Um, although I don't have the benefit of the Big Ten education and the video series, I have a little bit of a background with it because when I was a student in Colorado, they actually hooked up for a session on the video series. I think that was a talk by Charles Franklin at Wisconsin. So I um, was very impressed with the series and, and what it was able to get out of pooling resources. I'm not going to talk about video conferencing or the Big Ten in this talk, but rather the international dimension of civil war. And by that I mean that even though we think of civil wars as conflicts that take place within states, and that probably should be explained on the basis of things within countries, in many cases civil wars display clear transnational dimensions in terms of the factors driving conflict outsets, as well as how conflicts evolve. And what I aim to convince us today is that these transnational dimensions are very salient in many civil wars, and that paying greater attention to the transnational dimensions of civil war can tell us something about civil war that has been partly obscured in much of the existing research. So, as uh, David mentioned, this is part of a larger project uh, sponsored by the NSF, and it will eventually give rise to a book manuscript. I've also started working on some extensions that we have time, we can talk a bit more about those towards the end. So to give you an overview of what I would like to do, I would first 
like to start by talking informally about what I mean by civil wars having transnational dimensions and in what sense these can be captured by looking just at the attributes of individual countries and how they indicate some limitations in the existing study of civil war. Um, what I'm going to do then is to go over some of the particular hypotheses about identifying transnational linkages that tell us something about conflict and peace and how I address those in this paper. Now, since this is a method series, I'll also emphasize some of the implications that transnational dimensions have for how we need to study civil war, and more generally, some of the problems that we run into when we have observations that are not independent of one another, but where events in other units influence the uh, uh, outcomes in a single unit. So I'll talk about how we can devise a statistical model to deal with such interdependence between um, observations, and then I'll show the results of applying this to civil war data and what that tells us about transnational dimensions. So let me start by saying a little bit about what I mean by civil wars having transnational dimensions and why this seem important in civil war processes. Well, traditionally, most conflict research is focused on conflict between states. But if you look at any kind of list of conflicts that take place, world, take place in the world today, it's obvious that very few of these can be characterized as clear conflicts pitting one state against another. Rather, they more typically involve confrontations between a state and some kind of non-state actors that isn't a recognized entity international system. And so it's often assumed that if you have these wars between state and non-state actors, these are interstate conflicts or civil wars, and they should be explained by reference to processes or events in the country in which they take place. If you look at the recent study by Freeman and Leighton on civil war in the APSR, for instance, they argue that civil wars are entirely driven by the strength of the state, as well as factors that dispose for insurgencies so such as tall mountains and impenetrable forests and so on. Now, what I argue is that even though civil wars do not pit states against one another, they in many cases display clear transnational dimensions indicating that features outside the country where the conflict occurs appear to play a very important role. So what do I mean by civil wars having transnational dimensions? Well, it's clear that in some cases, the actors or the non-state actors that fight against a uh, state government often have a transnational presence. Uh, recently, in 2001, there was an insurgency in Macedonia that was largely based in the Albanian minority. And what's interesting, if you look at the profile of the fighters that were active there, is that most of the mobilized combatants were not actually from Macedonia, rather they were Kosovars that had already been mobilized in the Kosovo <coughs> conflict, and then later on um, uh, participated in the insurgency in Macedonia. And in other cases, um, the recruitment basis for rebel groups may take place outside uh, the state where the conflict takes place as such. Now, in other cases, civil wars may be transnational either because of the states intervene. There are certainly some cases where many states um, contribute to conflict escalation to intervention. For instance, the civil war in the Democratic Republic of Congo is sometimes referred to as an African uh, global war because there are so many other countries involved. Now, what I argue is that since 
direct intervention is such a strong violation of another state's sovereignty, it's not a typical form of choice that other states take on. We're more likely to see more forms of indirect support where states provide either diplomatic uh, protection or some kind of material support to the insurgent side in civil wars. Um, in some cases, if insurgents expect to receive external support, that may even encourage the uh, insurgents to act in certain ways, if that would make intervention more likely. So in the case of Kosovo, for example, some people have argued that the fact that the Kosovars expected that international intervention would be more likely if they could provoke uh, the Serb government might actually encourage them to um, instigate insurgency, which they wouldn't have done if they hadn't anticipated any kind of international ramifications of it. And finally, we can say that civil wars may be transnational because the onset or presence of war in one country may have various externalities that spill into other states and that can in turn increase the risk of war in, in other states. So in some cases, for instance, civil wars may be associated with um, a decrease in the price or increase in the availability of arms. And so if the price of Kalashnikovs goes dramatically down, then that might make it easier or more feasible for other groups in other states to mobilize the results. In other cases, civil wars may generate refugee flows, and there's some evidence that these refugee flows may create security concerns in other states. They may provide a basis for recruitment uh, or uh, fighters in other countries in the region, but they may have more indirect effect contributing to uh, negative economic implications, which can then increase the risk of war. If you look at empirical data on conflict, traditionally most uh, data collection efforts, such as the Correlates of War Project, have assumed that civil war, that, that wars must be either in a state or civil. They cannot be one or the other. And that's led to a lot of ambiguities when it comes to classifying individual conflicts. Now, if you look at something like Bosnia and Kashmir, now formerly those are civil wars in the sense that we have a non-state actor waging a war against a national government. But if you look at the profile of the insurgent side, then it's obvious that the insurgents have clear links to governments in neighboring states. And in many cases, these sources of support may be as important as the domestic basis of the insurgents. Even more extreme example is um, cases of civil wars that then become internationalized. So in the corridors of war data, for instance, the civil war in Vietnam is coded as ceasing to exist when the U.S. becomes involved above a certain level. Now what I argue is that there's a more general relationship here in that many conflicts are, generated, are likely to generate events, both within societies and between societies, and rather than using a mutually exclusive definition, we should instead look at how issues can give rise to conflict both within and between states. Um, and an appropriate term for that is what I think of as transnational conflict. It's also interesting to note that if you look at the recent conflict events that have been coded by the Uppsala data after 2000, all of them are interstate. They're not conflicts between two state governments. But if you look at any one of them in detail, it's clear that all of them um, involve clear transnational elements. We talked about the Aldenian involved in Macedonia. A lot of the wars in West Africa have strong elements of retaliation from one government for what they see as support to insurgencies in their own territory. So in Guinea, for instance, um, Charles Taylor provided support to the, um, to the rebels, 
And it did so not because he had any kind of affinity with the rebels, but because he wanted to retaliate for what he saw as Guinean incursion in Liberia. If you think of a conflict like September 11, that's clearly not a conflict between state governments, but it would be incorrect to think of it as a purely civil war. It's an attack within the U.S., but it's largely carried out by foreign-based groups, and it leads the United States to intervene in civil wars uh, elsewhere in the global system. So, if you think that transnational dimensions are salient in many actual civil wars, then we should at least be attuned to the possibility that transnational relations or relations between states may be important influences on how civil wars evolve and possibly also the risk that they will break out in the first place. As I mentioned, the existing um, tradition of comparative studies of civil war, they focus almost exclusively on country-specific characteristics and they also tend to assume that civil wars in each country are independent phenomena entirely explained by domestic events. Well, that's very problematic if you believe that transnational factors influence the risk of civil war. Of course, because there's a whole set of factors that haven't been considered. But also, if there's any kind of linkage between the actors and the issues across countries, then the outcomes that we see in different countries may be very much jointly influenced by one another in ways that um, uh, haven't been taken into account in existing research. So, in this particular paper and the larger project, I take a broader regional approach. I consider a host of phenomena within countries as well as processes between countries that can influence the risk for uh, conflict. And I make three broad guiding assumptions that motivate the way I set up the empirical analysis. The first one is that we can't think of states or civil war diets, that is a diet between a non-state actor or a government, as self-contained and independent, we can't just look at the attributes of the actors, but we have to look at how their interaction is influenced by relations with other states or uh, groups located outside the country where the conflict occurs. Now, if these transnational factors influence the risk of conflict, then we cannot reduce those to attributes of individual countries, but we have to look at how outcomes in one individual country may be linked to processes of events that took place in other states. The other simplifying assumption that I make is that when we look for possible linkages that may be important in saying something about the risk of conflict and peace, um, it's possible that everything could be connected to everything else, but everything else being equal, we would expect the regional linkages to be the most important in conflict dynamics. And in other studies have shown that um, most of the forms of dependence that we seem to have in international relations seem to be local, and at least for now, I will look only at the potential importance of regional or local actors. And then, clearly, we can think of examples of dependence that would go beyond geographical distance, but we can then go back and add that they don't a complicating factor. So for now, I'm just going to consider the role of, uh, of local actors. So one way to justify the regional or geographical approach that I take is to look at the distribution of conflicts and how, if at all, that may be seen to suggest special linkages. And what I've done here is that I've taken a map of 
the incidents in the Uppsala data on armed conflict for the period 1989 to 2001. And I only plot conflicts that are considered as civil wars, that is not pitting states against one another for the time being. And on this map, the blue dots, they indicate um, civil wars where governments fight non-state actors. And you can see some of them are light blue. Those are civil wars that are coded as internationalized in that they have forms of intervention from other states on the side of the government. So if you look at the distribution of these, we can see that it doesn't seem to be a spatially random pattern, but we see a whole set of concentration of outbreaks in certain regions. So in the contemporary system, for instance, we have a large number of conflicts in the Caucasus area. We also have concentration of civil wars in West Africa. And in previous time periods, we would find similar conflict clusters, for instance, in Central America, where the rebellions seem to be linked to rebellions in other states. And so, if it took a naive approach to saying something about where conflict occurs, um, we would get a much better prediction of the risk of conflict if you take into account whether an area is adjacent or proximate to another area that is experiencing civil conflict. Now, of course, this just looks at the distribution of conflict, and we don't know if conflict seems to be geographically clustered just because they're determined by something else that's also geographically clustered. Um, but in other analysis, I've used more formal methods to show that the clustering conflict doesn't go away if you consider other characteristics such as political institutions. I'm sorry? This is all right. I just want to interrupt with a request. Is it possible to log that catch just a little bit? It's not quite legible for us. I don't know how to do that, but maybe someone else does. Yeah, we have to remake your slide. Yeah, okay. I'm sorry about that. Yeah, it, it's just a PDF file, so I'm not sure if I can uh, crop the margins easily. No. I'll, I'll, well, if anything isn't clear, then ask me about it, and I'd be happy to elaborate. So in any case, I was saying that um, this kind of clustering in conflict outbreaks, it doesn't go away if you consider other features of states that also could be geographically clustered, such as economic factors and political institutions. And indeed, in a previous paper with Mark Ward, I've shown that taking spatial characteristics into account can actually um, help us predict civil war outcomes, and it tells us something about where conflict is more likely to occur in the future. And so, on the one hand, it's interesting to know that taking geographic factors into account in and of itself can help us predict conflict, but we would also like to know something about what causal mechanisms may underlie this. That is, um, we'd like to know not only that the risk of civil war is higher in Guinea if there's a civil war in Liberia, but something about the mechanisms that make conflict more likely if you have a conflict in neighboring states, and what that tells us about what kind of features we should focus on in conflict management and uh, is making efforts. So what I've tried to do in this particular project is to see if you can decompose this geographical clustering into identifiable components that tell us something about what kind of linkages may give rise to the spatial clustering. 
So I'll consider two parts. I'll consider to what extent this is just a direct clustering effect where the actors aren't linked and um, we just have a higher availability of arms and uh, features that aren't related between the conflicts. And to what extent can we account for differences in civil war risk between regions in terms of the specific transnational linkages that link different countries? I'll talk more about their hypothesis in a second. Um, but for the time being, I'm interested in saying how much of the general special clustering can be decomposed into identifiable linkages. The other thing I'll try to do is to address an issue um, that has shown up in many diffusion studies. And that is that we can't just look at spatial clustering and infer from that that there must be some kind of diffusion process because it's possible to find evidence of diffusion just because we have a misspecified model omitting factors that happen to be spatially clustered. Um, in diffusion studies, uh, we sometimes talk about Galton's problem that you can't infer functional linkages from comparing attributes between states because what seems to be a functional relationship could be a product of diffusion. But of course, this problem also holds the other way around. We can't just infer diffusion directly from looking at clustering. We need to look at this in the context of the central country-specific features that we believe to be associated with civil war uh, differences. So the second objective I have here is to try to see what gets left of diffusion when you insert this into a more plausible um, model of civil war, taking into account domestic factors. So the three main hypotheses that I focus on in this paper uh, pertain to ethnicity, institutions, and what I called measures of institutional quality or integration or, or uh, preferences between states and the region. So the first one is quite, quite intuitive. We know that a great number of civil wars have an ethnic basis. In many cases, civil wars are um, fought by... Um, uh, distinct ethnic groups that seek some kind of increase in autonomy or um, uh, independence from a, a national government. But we also know that if you look at the distribution of ethnic groups, that most ethnic groups do not fit neatly within boundaries of nation states. So in many cases it will be the case that ethnic groups will have a presence in other countries. And that means that there is a transnational constituent community that a potential insurgent group can turn to for potential diplomatic or material support for insurgencies. There's some evidence for this in the existing civil war literature. Paul Collier and Ankle Hoffler, for instance, in their World Bank project, they found that the size of a um, the size of a country's diaspora in the US turns out to be a good predictor of civil war risk. And that's sort of consistent with what I indicate, but it raises a host of other problems too, because clearly the diaspora could be endogenous to the conflict. We could have a large diaspora because there's a high level of violence taking place in the country. So what I propose to do instead is to look at the pre-conflict um, uh, linkages or whether the ethnic groups in a country are present in other states. And I hypothesize that everything else being equal, ethnic groups that have a transnational basis or transnational presence will be more likely to get external support and hence would have a greater opportunity to wage conflict on a state, even when we control for the size of the group and its resources within countries. Now, 
uh, being political scientists, we're obviously interested in how institutions might influence conflict. And there's been a great deal of interest in this with respect to a country's own institutions. But if you believe in working with democratic peace and institutions, it tells us something about the constraints that leaders face on intervention or sending troops to the states, then the institutions that are in place among countries, neighboring countries in the region, should also tell us something about the barriers or the constraints that exist upon executives on getting involved in civil war situations. So if you take the example of Zimbabwe, um, who's intervened in the Democratic Republic of Congo, we know that that conflict is very unpopular within um, uh, Zimbabwean society. But since it's primarily an autocratic country without any meaningful domestic constraint, there's really nothing to constrain a leader from Mugabe to intervene in a civil war situation if they have strong preferences about outcomes. Now, in more democratic politics, we would expect that um, domestic constraints would impose more of a constraint on rulers on intervening. So I hypothesize that everything else being equal, the more of your neighboring countries have democratic institutions with constrained executives, we would expect the lower likelihood of external intervention or external support, which again should decrease the risk of civil war. The final factor that I look at is uh, the extent to which we have meaningful measures of integration between countries. And in particular, I look at the extent of the total volume of trade that takes place between countries within the region. So you might argue that trade isn't carried out by states. That's just done by individual agents that look at profit margins. And so why should that tell us something about civil war? Well, I think it's an important indicator for, for two reasons. The first one is that trade takes place under patterns of expectations. And presumably actors in that area, if they anticipate potentially disruptive conflict that could uh, destroy trade relations, they would be more reluctant to engage in trade with other countries. So it should reflect patterns of compatibility or um, compatibility or, or, um, or uh, compatible preferences between governments in the region. And the other thing that trade also tells us something about is that it's a good indicator of the quality of a country's institutions. Um, most of the measures of institutions that political scientists have looked at are very crude. They look either at GDP per capita alone or whether a country is a democracy. But clearly there's another component in this too. We know that some autocracies have relatively orderly security apparatus um, and they should be better able to um, sort of facilitate trade and integrate potentially great communities. And so everything else being equal, we expect that countries that have a lot of trade with neighboring countries would have both more compatible relations and also <coughs> more likely have great institutional quality that should allow them to um, negotiate civil war outcomes in ways so as to avoid conflict. Now, I try to take into account the main country-specific factors that people have argued are in relation to civil war. The first part is a country's own political institutions. Um, a clearly democracy should matter, but there are also many arguments that the risk of civil war is not the highest in the most autocratic states because they're repressive enough to deter insurgencies, rather we should expect to see most conflict in countries that are somehow in the middle that are not open enough to permit um, uh, non-violent political alternatives, yet not repressive enough to completely deter dissent. So 
Um, that argument suggests that we should find a U-shaped relationship between level of democracy and the risk of conflict. <coughs> I also look at a state's income, which many people interpret as a measure of state strength. And finally, there's some arguments that civil wars are more likely in ethnically mixed or <coughs> heterogeneous societies. So I include a measure of a country's own ethnic um, uh, mix. So the measure that I use is the total size of the population that's not included in the dominant ethnic group. So, so far I've talked a lot about dependence, but I haven't said very much about how we could identify dependence and how we would integrate this into a model of conflict. What I did say, though, is that I assume that most of the potentially relevant factors would be spatially proximate. And so if you can assume that that local um, dependence is mainly geographical, then we can specify the dependence among the actors of the observations in uh, our study as what's called a locally dependent Markov field. If you're familiar with time series, for instance, you may know that we sometimes talk about Markov processes in time. And we say that something is a first order Markov process if we um, can treat the process independent once we're conditioned on the temporally most proximate observations. And we can think of analogies to that in the, um, in the spatial domain. So in this case here, for instance, the conditional probability of a civil war in one individual country is called that I. We would say that that would depend on what happened in other country J if and only I and J are geographical neighbors. So substantively, for instance, if we're looking at the risk of civil war in the Democratic Republic of Congo, it doesn't matter if we have civil wars in Colombia, but we would make very different assumptions about the risk of civil war if there is a civil war in neighboring countries such as Rwanda. So once we have the uh, network of linkages of the observation down, then we can specify this either as a graph or as a matrix. So let's call that connectivity matrix W. So for each observation uh, data set, we have a row that indicates whether it's connected to other states. And since I'm assuming that it's the geographically proximate actors that are relevant, I use a data set on minimum distance um, uh, that I coded with Mark Ward to specify observations as being connected to one another. So in the connectivity matrix for two countries R and J, we will have a positive um, entry in the connectivity matrix if those countries are within 500 kilometers from one another. Now the matrix, that specifies the entire set of linkages between the observations. So we can use this to introduce dependence in uh, a number of different ways. We can use that to identify whether there is conflict in connected countries. That is whether we have dependence or clustering in the dependent variable. But we can also use the connectivity matrix to classify or measure the spatial characteristics that are reflected in other independent variables. So if you know whether countries are democratic or not, then we can use the connectivity matrix to derive measures of what institutions look like in other uh, connected countries. So, as David mentioned, uh, and I guess his course is evidence of, there's a great deal more attention to spatial dynamics or spatial linkages now in the social sciences. Um, most of this work comes from economics, and Luke Anselin, for instance, has 
um, written uh, a great deal on how you can integrate spatial complex in your regression model, either by creating a right-hand side lag of the dependent variable based on the connectivity matrix, or have some kind of spatially correlated author structure. Now, this isn't ideal for complex studies because it presumes that you're looking at a continuous feature, whereas in complex studies, you typically have event data or outcomes that are binary or, or if categorized, very coarse or few categories. So it's a more natural way to think of a spatially dependent process for um, event data or binary outcomes is as a uh, conditional probability model. So we can think of the risk of war as being an underlying latent probability that's influenced by attributes by countries themselves, but where the latent probability is also influenced by whether we have a conflict in a connected or adjacent state. So this is sometimes called the autologistic model because it's a spatially conditional logistic model where the outcomes on the dependent variable are conditional on the values of that same dependent variable in other entities. This is literally developed in natural sciences. It turns out that if you're doing work on, say, deforestation or image restoration or some kind of continuous spatial process, and you don't have complete sample data, the best way to predict what individual sample size would be is the condition on the dependent variable in the uh, um, conditional and uh, the adjacent observation. And clearly here, if you expect spatial dependence, that would be a natural way to think of modeling the risk of war too. And so what I do is that I use the connectivity matrix and I derive an indicator that tells us whether there's conflict in the condition in a contiguous or adjacent country. And then in estimating the risk of conflict, the condition on um, conflict or the dependent variable in other states. So this gamma parameter here that tells us the extent to which we have spatial clustering or conditionality. If the gamma parameter is positive, then there's some kind of spatial clustering or contagion. So the risk of war increases when we have war in adjacent countries. And the model is very conceptually similar to a logit model. And so indeed, if the gamma parameter here is zero, then there's no conditionality or no contagion, and the whole model would simplify to a standard logit model. Now, I've said that I'm interested not just in direct spatial contagion or clustering, but I'd also like to see whether I could account for these regional differences by looking at differences in how country characteristics are um, associated or how they pertain to transnational linkages between states. So in the model, for purpose of comparison, I separate between factors that are particular to each country and those that are transnational in the sense that they tell something about relations between states or characteristics of, of other countries. And then I introduce them separately in the model so that we can say something about the relative importance of each. And finally, since I have overtime data, I also consider um, uh, time dependence because we know that countries that have had conflict are more at risk to experience conflict in future time periods. And I do that by looking at the concept of the so-called length of time of peace. And since it's easier here to work with this parametric, I've just made that an exponential function, which uh, I fitted to the data. So um, in this case, we have something that decays very fast in uh, the few couple of years after, after you've had a war. So once you've had a war, in the next couple of years, the risk of war is high. But once you've passed the first period, then uh, there's no difference between countries that 
have uh, tested reverse prior and those that haven't. Now, this seems like a logical way to think of conditional processes, but if you look in the um, uh, social science literature, I haven't been able to find a single example of anyone looking at an old logistic model. So that raises the question of why, if this is a natural way to think about it, why are there so few applications of it? And one thing that I soon discovered when I started reading in this area is that if you really believe that the values of the dependent variable in for one observation are dependent upon the values of the dependent variable for another observation, then it gets really hard to estimate this model using traditional uh, maximum likelihood methods. Because what we usually assume are that the observation is dependent once we consider conditioned on all the independent variables. But this model here suggests that the independent variable itself has an influence, and that means that all the observations are conditional on one another, and that makes it really hard to apply many standard estimation techniques. But it is possible to estimate the autologistic model or conditional processes by using simulation methods. I'm not going to talk very much about simulation methods here, um, but I'd like to give a brief overview of the general uh, uh, principle or how you can estimate something like this from uh, simulation and how that helps you overcome the problem of dependent observation. And so the idea in the MCMC estimation of um, the autologistic model is that if you know what an autologistic process looks like and you know what all the, um, the um, covariates or country data are, then you should be able to generate maps and these maps would be fully characterized by the parameters of the autologistic process and the sufficient statistics or the information that's contained in the data for the observations. And so we can use that insight in that we can uh, generate um, simulated data from some kind of starting values where we know what the parameters are. And then we can use the information that's contained in these samples to try to approximate what the parameters should be for the observed data. So we use the information in simulated data to try and recover the sufficient statistics from the observed data. And more specifically, we do this by finding starting estimates by something called maximum pseudo-likelihood. And that's similar to standard logic model in that you assume that everything is fixed when you find the estimates. And through the simulation, you then modify these until you find the estimates that uh, solve the score equations. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the comparison about the estimates afterwards, but we can think of this as just using sort of simulated hypothetical data to learn something about the observed data. Now, um, I'd like to also say a couple of words on how this relates to the previous work that I did with Mark Ward. Um, the paper with Mark Ward, that's also an autologistic model, but we only looked at a single year of cross-section, um, and here I expand that to a uh, broader time period. But the other problem with the study that I did with Mark Ward is that we looked at a very high uh, concrete threshold. We only looked at events that generate more than a thousand fatalities. But it's certainly plausible that um, we could have spillover mechanisms that don't ma manifest themselves in full-scale wars. And in any cross-section, there just aren't going to be that many wars. So we should get a less idiosyncratic sample if we use a lower 
concrete threshold in a broader time period. So more specifically, I used the new data that I collected uh, at Prio and the University of Uppsala in Sweden. And they contain all um, variant events that generate more than 25 casualties. So most of the other data that I use as standard, um, I use po uh, the quality data to tell something about institutions. <coughs> I use data from the minorities of risk data to identify ethnic groups that span national boundaries and IMF data for trade. So what did the results look like when we apply this to a uh, model of conflict? And how does that differ from what we would find if we just assumed that all countries were different and treated the observations as independent of one another? So what we have in the Second column here are the MCMC estimates of the model, including the transnational factors. And for comparison, we have logistics estimates, uh, assuming that each country is independent in this third column. And the first thing to note is that when we look at the coefficient <coughs> estimates for the transnational or um, uh, international features, we find strong evidence that all of them seem to be associated with differences in the risk of civil war. So, for instance, we find a large positive coefficient for conflict in adjacent countries. And that indicates that there's a clear contagion or clustering effect, and that having been proximate to other countries that experience civil war has certain externalities or uh, implications that increase the risk of civil war, even when we can control for all attributes of individual countries. But if we look at the uh, terms for the transnational linkages that I've identified, then we can see that we can break down some of the overall clustering into identifiable components, and some of them are factors that tell us something about a higher risk of war, but we can also identify factors that make countries more um, prone to peace or less at risk of war than perhaps would be expected based on their internal characteristics. So we can see that the term for transported groups is positive, and that tells us that countries that have war, ethnic groups that span uh, international boundaries are more likely to have civil wars, and that holds even when we take into account the ethnic mix of the country itself. But we've also identified two transnational things that should tell us something about prospects for peace, and it turns out that indeed we find that <coughs> the more of the neighboring countries have democratic institutions that constrain the executive, the lower the risk of civil war would be. And interestingly, when we um, control for the pacifying effect of democracy in other neighboring states, then we find absolutely no effect at all of whether a country itself is a democracy. So that tells us something interesting about the impact of a country's own institution. In the case of India, the fact that India has many civil wars is not necessarily indicative of a problem per se within these institutions, but rather that you're exposed to all sorts of um, externalities and external support mechanisms from neighboring states that we wouldn't um, uh, be attuned to if we only looked at factors within India. Now, finally, I find a large negative effect of regional trade. And so that suggests that countries that are more integrated with the neighboring countries and have greater trade flows among one another are significantly less likely to um, be associated with conflict. And it's also interesting to note that when we 
take into account the role of trade, even though trade has a sort of large negative effect in the logic model where we assume that countries are independent of one another, um, the coefficient estimate creeps dramatically closer to zero once we control for differences in trade integration. Now, I don't want to say that um, that means that the country's own economic institutions do not matter, but it's certainly true that a lot of the ways that income has been interpreted in existing studies are very indirect and maybe overly strong conclusions about what you can infer from GDP per capita. So take the theorem of Leighton argument about state strength, for instance. Now, to my knowledge, North Korea would be near the bottom if you look at things like GDP, but it seems patently absurd to suggest that that's a strong, uh, weak state in terms of control over citizenship and ability to repress conflict. And indeed, if you believe studies about the resource curse, they suggest that GDP often may grow in ways that also give rise to rent-seeking that could actually undermine governance and state effectiveness. And so I think sort of the lifting that trade does here is that it helps identify differences in institutional quality that can't be directly proxied by, by, uh, by, uh, by a GDP per capita of a country alone. Now, some people, when they look at the largest estimate, they might say that when I look at the coefficients over here, I don't see great differences once the transnational features are included. And so some people might interpret from that 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 suggests that we don't really need to consider these things. And since time appears to be driving a lot of the differences here, how do we know that these transnational factors really tell us anything? Um, maybe it's time that's doing the heavy lifting, and then these transnational features just identify additional parts that aren't really substantively important. Actually, I'm going to skip ahead since I noticed that we're moving slowly on. And so one way to evaluate that would be to see, if you think of this in the decision theoretic sense, we know that more independent variables um, would always seem to fit better. So do the transnational factors really tell us anything beyond um, what's contained by time? Or do they actually make a substantial contribution to um, telling us something about where civil war outcomes take place? So in a decision-theoretic sense, we could think of this as a um, uh, basic question. So if you think of both the transnational and the country-independent model as being equally plausible before the data, what's the relative plausibility of the models once we've seen the data? Um, what's the ratio of the posterior probabilities? Um, Adrian Raftery has suggested one way to evaluate the support for two models, given the sample size and degrees of freedom. And he proposes looking at something that he calls the Bayesian information criterion. And so for an individual model, the Bayesian information relative to the null model, that would be the likelihood ratio chi-square. So the graded likelihood ratio chi-square is the more support there is for model of the null. But we also know that when sample sizes get large, then everything will tend to become statistically significant. So it penalizes the model for the complexity or the number of degrees of freedom, and it also has a penalty for the sample size. So we can think of this as something that tells us whether something fits substantially better given uh, uh, the degrees of freedom and so on. So if it, the relevant comparison here would be to compare a logic without the transnational factors to the old logistic model. 
And when we do that, we can see that they both have negative um, uh, BICs. A BIC of zero would mean that there was no support for a model over the null. In this case, they're both negative. And that indicates that the models are better than a null model. But if you look at the absolute size, we can see that the uh, BIC prime for the both logistic model for transnational factors is much um, more negative than the one for the logit model. And if you look at the difference between the two, uh, Rastris suggests that that could be interpreted as a base factor. And so that difference, that indicates sort of the relative degree of support for the logistic model. And the fact that that's a large number, it's well over the threshold of 10. Um, it falls within the range of what Rastris calls strong evidence for the superiority of the spatial model over the uh, country-independent model. So, <clears throat> well, there's a lot of interest in civil war now, and some might question that maybe what you interpret as evidence of transnational linkages here are just um, results of immediate variables. How do we know that there aren't other country-specific features that happen to be associated between countries um, that you pick up as uh, transnational linkages? And so, one way of comparing that would be to take sort of a standard model of civil war and say what happens when you introduce the transnational linkages into that particular model. And the obvious comparison here would be the Fairland and Leighton model in the APSR. And that's an interesting comparison for my purposes too, because they very explicitly argue that international factors are not important. Um, so we can see here that when we use their data, and we just add my transnational variables, then we still find considerable evidence suggesting that transnational linkages are important, even in the context of their model, which includes a whole set of other country-specific variables that I didn't consider in my first specification. So again, we have the same pattern. We have a positive impact of conflict in neighboring countries. Democratic institution in neighboring states has a negative effect and trade again has a negative effect. Um, in this case, contiguous groups has a right sign, but it's not statistically significant, and that could be a result of um, that Fearon and Leighton use very different measures of fractionalization, which may include and be associated with uh, uh, cross-country uh, uh, differences. So again, this is a very different um, model of civil war. It uses very different types of data, but even in their model, when introduced transnational factors, we find considerable evidence that these appear to be associated with civil war outbreaks. So there seems to be something about um, differences between where states are located and the relations to other states and actors that are not fully accounted for if we look just at attributes of individual countries. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. And um, <clears throat> MCMC estimation is very difficult. And there's been some cases where people have estimated logit models with transnational components where they've just specified a variable that counts sort of civil wars in neighboring countries and so on. Now, if you estimate a standard logit model, including transnational factors, and you just assume that these are fixed at the estimation stage, um, is that a problem? Do we um, run into a whole set of problems that can't be solved? 
And do we really get much out of doing MCMC estimation, especially when this is time-consuming and, and difficult to do and so on? Um, there's quite a bit of theoretical work on this, and the theoretical literature suggests that doing a logit model or a maximum pseudo-likelihood model where we just treat outcomes in other countries as fixed, that has reasonable asymptotic properties. It should be correct on average, but it's not necessarily efficient. And so what I wanted to do is to do a comparison and see if the MCMC estimates really do notably better than a logit model where we just treat the transnational um, conflicts as being determined. And so what these results suggest that A, doing logit, where we just assume that outcomes are predetermined when we estimate the risk of war, that sort of gives us the right answers. But there are a couple of um, interesting differences that suggest that MCMC estimation does better. And so what are those? Well, the first one is that we know that a logit or maximum pseudo likelihood model tends to be inefficient, and it's more inefficient the stronger the spatial clustering is. Now, in this case, the spatial clustering is relatively strong. And so what seems to happen in the maximum pseudo likelihood estimates is that we get a much higher coefficient for the direct contagion effect. We tend to overestimate the direct contagion effect. And then all the other coefficients as a result tend to get biased towards zero. So we can see that they generally seem to have the same sign, but everything else being equal, uh, all the other coefficients seem to be closer to zero in the maximum pseudo likelihood estimate than they are in the MCMC estimate. And so then the question becomes, does that matter? Does it matter for hypothesis testing? And does it matter for prediction? Well, it does matter on the margin. The MCMC standard error estimates are considerably smaller than maximum pseudo-likelihood estimates. So in the case of something like um, regional democracy, for instance, we might not conclude that that was a consistent effect if we looked at the maximum pseudo-likelihood estimates. But there's another more important sense where the logit model treating outcomes in other countries as fixed is wrong because it may give you somewhat correct estimates, but it tries to estimate the wrong process. Um, it doesn't take into account the conditionality, and it doesn't take into account how the areas propagate. So if you get an overly hard prediction for one country, that's likely to influence the predictions for other states. And in fact, if you look at the ability of the model to classify outcomes correctly in the sample, then we can see that the MCMC estimates have much better discriminatory power between the um, uh, conflict outcomes that are predicted and those that we actually see. So we see, um, right, we see, we see um, 26 more outbreaks in um, the MCMC estimates that we would have missed if we used maximum pseudo-likelihood. Um, that's not because we're just biased towards having higher probabilities overall, because the number of false positive compares favorably to with the increase in better prediction. Now, of course, here the time component does like the heavy lifting. I was experimenting with doing out of sample forecasting, and I actually find that generally that taking the transnational factors into account, uh, the MCMC estimates have better out of sample. Um, um, properties than the maximum pseudo-likelihood estimates do. And so that suggests that using a standard logit model is much more vulnerable to idiosyncrasies in the sample, and it could pick up on that rather than structure. But on the positive side, there seems to be something about transnational linkages that are not just 
um, uh, that are just not factors that are present at certain points in time. But there's certain enduring quality where um, certain regions have higher conflict probabilities over and beyond what we expect from the country attributes per se. Okay, so <coughs> I hope that over all of this I've given you at least some evidence, which I think is persuasive, that we can't just think of civil wars as things that are fully determined by features within countries. We have to look at relationships between states and uh, other states, as well as how actors relate to actors in other countries and withdrawn resources outside the country's boundary. In order to understand something about civil wars, now, for purposes of, of uh, presentation, in this paper I set it up as a dichotomy. I say that there are some factors that are domestic and others that are transnational. But in reality, the boundary is not so clear-cut. And perhaps the most interesting um, way to think about this is not to dichotomize them as internal or external, but think about how <coughs> both domestic and external factors can influence the kinds of interaction between um, civil war antagonists. So um, I have a number of extensions on this project, and what I try to do there is to go beyond the aggregate level that I've explored in this particular paper and try to identify more specific data on the non-state actors in civil wars and how they're linked to communities, constituents, and sources of support in other countries. Um, what I've done as part of my NSF project with Barbara Walter, is that we've taken the Uppsala data and then we've collected data on the non-state actors to each of the conflicts in that data set, as well as the external linkages and patterns of support in ongoing conflict. And so what we're trying to do now is to look at what those uh, disaggregated features tell us about the pattern of civil war duration and civil war escalation. And then eventually what we would like to do is to use those to identify um, the direct links between groups that could be mobilized and go back to an analysis of onset at the group level and think about what kind of group constellations would be conflict prone and what kind of group constellations would um, be more likely to end in negotiated outcomes or settlements. So from a policy perspective, I think there's an interesting link here to some of the recent comparative growth literature. If you do work on uh, comparative development, for instance, you will see that in comparative growth studies, we have these regional dummy variables that no one really knows what means. So in a growth model, if you introduce a dummy variable for Africa, that almost always comes out uh, negative. And so that suggests to economists that there's something about African countries that even when we look at all their macroeconomic policies, they just don't seem to get the same type of payoff for having the right macroeconomic policies that we would expect based on economic theory. Now again, this assumes that all countries and growth rates are independent of one another. And another way that we could think about this is that maybe what's distinct about Africa is not so much that governments do not uh, do the right thing, so have the right policies, but African countries more so than uh, other countries in Europe or Asia, they'd be more exposed to negative externalities or spillover effects from bad policies in the neighboring countries. And so it turns out that a country may do all the right things in a macroeconomic sense, but it may still have a low growth rate, 
because it's subject to a lot of shocks and negative effects from its neighboring countries. And it turns out that um, when Easterly did work on looking at spatial dynamics in growth models, it finds that if you insert a variable for um, economic growth in neighboring countries, then a lot of these regional dominant variables go away. So we could either treat them as specific and ignorance and just say that there's something different about Africa, or we could start thinking about what it may be about country spillovers that make growth processes in Africa differ from those in other continents. Um, there's also another methodological component uh, of this, and that is that um, we can think of diffusion patterns and so on as things that we could observe in empirical sense. Um, but I'm also interested in what the structure of networks or linkages uh, would look like and how particular network characteristics may give rise to different types of diffusion mechanisms and how uh, interventions may serve to uh, 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 sort of facilitate negotiation or lead to escalation depending on network characteristics and what the relations between the actors <coughs> look like. So I'm taking two approaches for that. I'm working one with a mathematician on a, um, uh, a purely theoretical project where we just look at network attributes and patterns of diffusion that they can give rise to. I'm also doing joint work with Lars Eric Siedemann where we try to use some of the empirical relationship here and insert that into his computational models of state formation and relations between actors where it's introduced civil war and um, state dissolution as one of the mechanisms. And so what we're hoping to do is to, in combining some of the empirical work with uh, the computational model and theory building, to be able to make an advance beyond the national, transnational dichotomy in civil war studies and instead think about how um, we have dynamics between actors and how different relations to different actors could influence the patterns of behavior that we see there. And I noticed that I've spoken for uh, a long time, so I think I should stop there and allow some time for questions. John. Uh, yeah, uh, you're dealing here not actually with civil wars, but with armed conflicts, right? So your your data are heavily swamped by microscopic conflicts. Uh, uh, would, would sure. You, wouldn't you expect the? Is that true? Uh, well, it's true here that I, I, uh, I include any event that generates more than 25 fatalities. Yeah. Right. So you get. So someone has yeah. more than 30 people get killed in a right. year. Right. Uh, it would seem to be that your, your conclusion would be even stronger if you raised that threshold because you would not expect sure. Sure. in a tiny conflict sure. the international thing. So if you got up to higher, it, right. it should be stronger. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And I have done that. I have, um, I have rerun the analysis just using things that we think of as severe events. And they get basically the same patterns. Um, and so that doesn't really change the conclusion. But... Um, well, if you can get it at that lower level, then... Yeah, 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 you should be able to get a strong level. Now, Fiona and Leighton, they have a footnote where they say that they tried to look at uh, conflict in neighboring countries, and they didn't find that that mattered. And so why do I find different results than they do? And I think um, part of the reason m might be differences in the conflict data. For instance, they code conflict occurring in sort of an abstract sense in countries, um, regardless of the specific spatial location. Now, we know that um, a lot of civil wars are very localized features. So in the case of Russia, for instance, the fact that we have a conflict in Chechnya, that suggests that we should 
maybe expect negative spillovers in the Caucasus region, but we wouldn't expect to see refugees coming over the border to Finland. Um, and so what Fearn and Leighton has done is that they've taken all the colonial conflicts and then they code those as conflicts in the metropole. So when Algeria is engaged in a war in France, for instance, that's coded as a civil war in France. And I think that when you introduce that, and then there's no sense of reference. And so it's perhaps not so surprising that you don't find so strong evidence of uh, geographical patterns. And you're also not including um, colonial wars, right, which are obviously international wars. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, if, if, um, if you have a colonial war, then by my token, that would take place in, um, <clears throat> in a country that's not on the map. So it wouldn't show up as being conflict in, the, in a uh, contiguous country. Uh, and that's obviously a problem. And another work that I've done, I've tried to identify, <clears throat> I'm actually working with some geographers of identifying the geographic locations and characteristics of the conflict. And that would allow you in the long run to identify um, also conflicts that take place in, in territories uh, that aren't independent states. And that turns out to be important for certain processes. For instance, the um, colonial wars, they also generate refugee flows in Africa that then end up in independent uh, countries. And so it's important to consider how you could have spillovers for things that aren't considered states per se. Now, <clears throat> there are lots of strange things like this in international relations data. For instance, Somalia is not considered to have disputes in the correlates of war data because it doesn't have a functioning government. So it just gets included as this observation that doesn't have any observation. Um, but clearly, weak states of that type, um, they could in turn have negative externalities for other neighboring countries. So it would be important to include those kind of things in, in an analysis that looks at conflicts below. Uh, let's see this one question there. Thank you for this talk. Uh, according to King, Cohen, and Verba, yeah. uh, the causal Okay, I see this as very much like the first um, first cut in the brush clearing exercise. All the all the evidence here is very much at the macro level, and so I say that this is consistent, that isn't that process operating. But you're right that I can't identify the process, sort of discriminate between different processes. Um, and so in terms of case studies, um, I haven't included any particular case studies in this work. But when we coded the disaggregated conflict data, and that actually led us to learn a lot about the features of the conflict, that would allow us to distinguish between um, some of them. But the other project that I'm engaged with, and that's actually my second NSF project, is to look at um, civil war dynamics in two regional settings. Uh, we're looking at a project um, that will study the Balkans and the Caucasus comparatively. And what we would like to see is sort of how differences of conflict within that region and the things that very specially tell us something about uh, civil war dynamics and the post-war outcomes. And so I, don't, I wish I could tell you that I've done that already and, and, and that I confirmed everything that I say, but I'm hoping to be able to have more market level evidence along those lines later. So a question there? Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, my question in a way is similar to John's. And I guess I'm wondering whether all civil wars are the same. Right. 
on whether they all belong to the same population. Sure. I mean, some are nationalists, some are ideological, some right. are religious, some right. are fighting for independence, regime change, foreign occupation. Uh -huh. yeah. um, in a sense, in this, from a skeptical standpoint, all they have in common is that people are being killed um, involving some kind of non-state actor. Sure. Um, and actually, some civil wars, from the standpoint of the meanings, the participants seem to have more in common with interstate wars right. than right. other civil wars. Right. Um, so I guess I'm wondering, what is the justification for grouping all of these mm -hmm. as a single uh, population? Is there really one reality here, or perhaps actually quite separate realities for the actors involved? No, I, I think that's an excellent question. And um, although the civil war literature doesn't really um, address this in much detail, it's very obvious that there are at least two modal cases of civil war. One of them are basically what we can think of as unsuccessful coups. We get a coup attempt, which then generates violence. And if it contains enough case of violence, then we call it a civil war. Um, and then there's the other case, which we can think of as sort of conflicts in the periphery, where we have um, distinct ethnic groups or distinct regions that try to seek some kind of uh, negotiated outcome uh, with the government. And in some cases, they do not necessarily need to have an uh, um, uh, ethnic basis. We can think of pure ideological war, where Marxist insurgency tries to take over control of the state. Um, I know of no analysis of civil war so far that I've tried to decide get very much from this. But, and also it becomes a little bit, um, there's some problems of post-hoc classification. So we can say that, um, well, this was a coup because it led to a change of government, or um, this was ideological because it sort of didn't succeed, and then they withdrew to the periphery and they mobilized the Indians and so on. Um, but another way of going about that would be to try to identify sort of classes of civil wars based on concrete characteristics and then see if different types of civil wars display different dynamics. And the first distinction that has been done in the episode of data now is whether the conflict is over government or whether it's over territory. And that's also very related to another geographical feature, which is where does the conflict take place? Does it take place in the uh, core or the capital, or does it take place in the periphery? And we find um, uh, very different dynamics between those two conflicts in the center. They tend to be short, um, they either succeed or they fail automatically, whereas conflicts in the periphery are much more drawn out. And so um, I see this as sort of first cut, it's relative to other studies of civil war, but I do think that there's a value of distinguishing between those two. And I would think that everything else being equal, that most of the transnational linkage would be more important in the peripheral conflicts than in the center conflicts. In the Senate conflict, then things like diplomatic support and, um, um, and whether you could have substitution between violence and political means would probably be more important than, than some of the dynamics that I've identified here. And that's part of the thing that we'd like to identify in the, the disaggregated project. Yes? Christy, can I wait a minute and pause to let Illinois know this so I have a chance with the technology? Okay. you got to have it delayed from anybody talking, so. They had a shot and got quiet for about three seconds. So if Illinois or Minnesota wants to jump in, that would be a great time. Or Wisconsin, I'm sorry, be a great time. Okay, I'll take your staff from Illinois. I don't hear Minnesota yet. Um, when you were making the case for why one should do FCFCs, uh, I think you said the theory indicates that it's not a bias to worry about efficiency. Right. But then, um, immediately thereafter, you just compare the coefficients and said it looks like they're biased in all the the all the uh, sure. perhaps the third part, but the one coefficient was inflated, and then you said that was causing all the others to be uh, 
lower than it ought to be. So I think that you would immediately contradict yourself. Am I misunderstanding? Well, not necessarily. I, I said that we have a lot of simulation studies, and they tell us that maximum pseudo likelihood is um, sort of okay on average, but it's not efficient, and so it gives us more uncertainty, and it can give us coefficients that are much further from the true values. And so, how would you validate the results when you only have one set of data? Um, that's hard to do. Um, you could try and compare it to different types of simulation situation and see if one applies. I mean, in this case, the conditionality is moderately strong, so you respect MCMC to do better. But I think the, um, what I see as sort of the most interesting test here is the, um, is the uh, sample classification. And the fact that the error propagation seems to lead to the problem with the maximum pseudo likelihood estimate, that's sort of more interesting than the fact that coefficients change marginally. Did you say that is inconsistent with, with what I said? Or what do you think would be the uh, would be the the way to to do the comparison? Uh, I don't know. It seems, seems like it's a hard thing to do just by the one case. So yeah. the improvement you're talking about classification was pretty small. It's 26 cases out of uh, what, 20,000 or something. Yeah, in, in sample in sample is not that large, and you wouldn't expect it to be that large because a lot of them they get right because of time dependence. Um, but the errors get larger out of sample, and you also see sort of more bifurcation the further out you go. It, it gets worse and worse over longer time periods. But um, I think this identifies a general problem in how you would evaluate, I guess, um, model with time dimensions and spatial dimensions at all, and that is you can't just look at directly at the coefficients. You have to look at the implied from spatial dynamics, because for instance, this model suggests feedback. So if, um, <coughs> let's say the coefficient for GDP per capita, that tells us the short-term effect of raising GDP, GDP per capita by a certain level. But if you think that there are feedback mechanisms, then the fact that that has an impact on the risk of conflict in one country, and if that's conditional on those of other countries, then you're gonna have feedback effects. So. In some sense, what you should be comparing are the implied long-run equilibrium outcomes rather than the short-term outcomes. And so maybe the best test of comparing the two would be not to look directly at the coefficients or the short-term classifications, but rather see if you simulate the two, how much divergence do you see between the two over a long time period, and which one do you think would be closer to the truth? But this is actually a, um, a problem that I guess that in much more spatial work, I've always glossed over. Um, but it's like in, if you include a lag dependent variable over time, then that will also change the interpretation of the coefficient in ways that researchers often don't make clear. So it's a good point, and it's definitely something that should be explored. There's one question there. I think the response is too. Oh, okay. They have to disconnect. Hey, is that me? Yeah, you're on. Uh, not at Minnesota, but at, actually at Mass. Um, I think the, the the issue for me on this is that uh, contagion works both ways. Uh -huh. And so if A is contagious to B, then B is also contagious to A. Right. So it strikes me as implicitly an endogeneity problem more than just an mm -hmm. autocorrelation problem in the usual sense. So I, I too, was concerned about this, but 
it, looking at uh, the first table you put up, you don't need to go to it because it's mm -hmm. so simple, but yeah. it's really the adjacent conflict variable that has the substantial change in the, in the, in the slope. Uh -huh. And that would be consistent with at least the clue notion that contagion is the greatest endogeneity. Uh, a little bit to my surprise, in regional trade doesn't seem to be all of that that much affected. So it'd be interesting if you could show on um, side evidence that conflict doesn't really drive trade very much, but might very well spin apparently here, spills over into, uh, into conflict. But I have one positive suggestion. Uh -huh. um, Another way to think about diagnosing this is whether there's residual autocorrelation, geographic autocorrelation, after you've done the model. Um, and that would be hard to specify in this, you know, uh, binary setup. Mm -hmm. But it, it just occurred to me, what if you put in a dummy variable for adjacency? And then look to see if the coefficient on that dummy variable for adjacency goes to zero in your final fully specified model. That'd be a crude way of testing for residual autocorrelation. Um, and if you could show that that went to zero, then you would have evidence that the specification for the contagion is actually pretty good, and that'd give you a direct test of that. You may be able to think of a much better, more sophisticated way of doing that, but I'm, I'm a crude kind of guy. <laughs> okay, if I can ask just a follow-up question. Did you mean a term for, for whether there's a conflict in a contiguous country? And then look at. Yeah. What I was thinking of is that if you simply put in a dummy variable for whether um, uh, for contigu contiguous countries, um, I'm not quite sure how that works out. Maybe this fails yeah. at that point. But anyway, what I would really like is that you have an implied autocovariance matrix in the, in the variance covariance matrix of this model. You'd ideally really like to model a row, which is a geographic autocorrelation across pairs of, of countries. Mm -hmm. That seems to me on the face of it kind of hard to specify and, and tease out. So I'm looking for a way to do that by just the dummy variable for whether um, a country is contiguous to another. Yeah, those are good suggestions. Um, we can think of other linkages other than geography. For instance, a lot of times trading patterns would suggest connectivity that is necessarily spatial, and that's something that, that should be studied. Um, I did actually look at where the number of borders had an impact, and it does, but it turns out that it's, the, it's positive. No, it's negative. And I think that's in part a, uh, an artifact of that Many of the developing countries are large and have few borders, whereas the countries that have the most borders are often countries in Western Europe. And although there have been periods in time where that was associated with security concerns, most of them now are at a point where um, those borders aren't necessarily conflict from. But uh, again, very good suggestions, and, and um, there's certainly more diagnostics that should be uh, should be looked at to uh, to justify the the model. Is this one? Question here and then. Thanks. Um, I, I find this model really interesting. I like it a lot. But I think that by making it an additive model, what you've shown us is, yeah. of course, holding constant heterogeneity and other factors that yeah. uh, neighboring conflict matters. But I think that you might stop short of the more insightful question, which is what are the state factors that mediate vulnerability to a neighboring conflict? So right. I wonder if you've tried um, 
interactions. The, the poorer countries become more vulnerable to cross-national spillage and other factors. By interacting those, you might get a little bit more um, insight into the conflicts. Who is more vulnerable um, to contagion? Yeah, again, those are excellent points. I think, other than for purposes of presentation, it's obviously a false dichotomy to say that things are external and, and internal. And the more, perhaps the more interesting thing would be how those uh, things interact. Um, I haven't really experimented with interactive terms here, in part because I thought many of the uh, indicators were so crude. But now that I have the more disaggregated data, that would make it, it, it easier to do that. And um, that actually allows me to examine more interesting political stories too. For instance, one of the things that we found is that um, <clears throat> some, of the, some of the longest lasting wars tend to be associated with rebels that we can withdraw over into neighboring countries. And <clears throat> if, an, if a neighboring country is weak, that makes it easier for rebels to, to, uh, to move into the country. But at the same time, it doesn't necessarily make it easy for the government to pursue them across the border, even though it's porous, because they insert certain costs by violating the sovereignty of other nations. So it gives you ideas to interesting links about how um, you could have different outcomes at the state and the government level, and how um, the things combine with one another. Don and then. You know that there's been a lot of literature that's really critiqued the sort of objective nature of those. I'm wondering how twofold have you played with it and seen how comfortable you are? Number two, on your walking case studies, I'm doing that, it's a good place to try to understand the dynamics of that and take it apart. Okay, on the ethnicity question. Yeah, I, I, I can agree with you more. One of the problems with the existing ethnicity measures that we have is that they tell us that so-and-so percentage are in this and that group. And then we develop some kind of index from that which tells us what's the likelihood that two people will be from the same group. And then we expect that that would tell us something about conflict. And, and there are lots of reasons why, why that would be problematic. One of them is that ethnic groups are usually concentrated. So small, numerically small in a population sense could be strong in regions such as Akshay, and that would give us things that aren't encompassed in an ethno-linguistic fractionalization measure. Um, now, the other thing, which is perhaps more problematic, is that the ethno-linguistic fractionalization measure, that doesn't tell us anything about whether a group is included in political institutions or whether it's excluded. And so, in fact, in the case of Iraq and other countries in the Middle East, um, you, you might have a large majority, but you could actually have small minorities that hold all the political power and discriminate against majorities. So, Lars Eric and I have started doing a little bit of work on that, and Lars Eric has developed a new measure of ethnolinguistic rationalization that looks at uh, the government affiliation and whether ethnic groups are included or not. And it turns out that many of the countries that get classified in different ways from the two are those that are prone to civil war. They haven't done this. Um, they haven't done this in a comparative setting, but they've shown that if you just replace their ethnicity measure with that of fear and Leighton for, I think they have Africa, I think they have um, everything but Africa, they actually find completely different results with respect to uh, the impact of ethnicity. Yes, well, that's just a little quick follow-up. The one additional dimension you might want to look into is that this is dynamic nature of that. Sure, sure, sure. In fact, 
because it's endogenous to the conflict. You yeah, got yeah. exactly right. And when you get a catalyst of a leader that actually says, hey, wait, you didn't know this, but you're in this yeah, ethnic yeah. group, that really yeah. changes. Well, exactly right. Uh, yeah, and also good things. The um, endogenous nature of ethnicity that I'm perfectly willing to believe that that's important. Um, but I think it's sort of hard to develop ways in which uh, where it's likely to evolve in some ways. Yeah, yeah. In fact, in the Bosnia question, uh, a lot of the questions that we ask are about relations and social distances between groups. Um, <clears throat> it's very interesting to note that in many areas of Bosnia, you have a very high percentage of people that consider themselves Yugoslav, which has totally disappeared uh, from one census to the other. Um, and so even things like diffusion, I mean, ultimately this has to refer to some process at the individual level. And in general, I think civil war studies completely ignore what kind of changes in attitudes and behavior and so on are associated with, with conflict processes. Yes? Um, I, I, for, uh, I also have a question about people Right. Um, some of the variables that you say are very important, the confrontational ones. Yeah. Uh, I would imagine the same thing in the for example, integration of threats is assumed that civil war sure. could frustrate, sure. also civil war could uh, make states uh, more reluctant to uh, being a democratized. Yeah. So yeah. I know your statistical model is already very dramatic. Sure. So what do you how you try to deal with uh, this kind of issue? Um, yeah, I haven't. I really haven't dealt with that in this project. But in the long run, um, some of the collaborative projects that I've been involved with um, will also try and look at the endogeneity of things like political and economic institutions. So I think there are lots of problems with the existing work on, say, federalism and civil war. We know that uh, countries that have federalist arrangements tend to have less conflict. But we also know that the ability to come up with consensual democratic arrangements and um, willingness to disperse power to regions, that's probably also related to existing levels of conflict at the outset. And if anything, in many cases where you already have polarized population, then trying to introduce a federal system often appears to be associated with greater conflict and greater competition. Um, so in the long run, I hope to be able to have a better answer to to how you could deal with that. Although I do think that you raise important, uh, important questions that could be explained, explored maybe in a better setting longitudinally for different regions or cases. John. Yeah, yeah we, uh, what would you think is a case study or set of case studies of case sort of place where beginning, middle, and end in Central America? Uh -huh. At one time in the 70s, 80s, there was a whole plethora of civil wars in that area. Right. And um, a whole lot of interlinked linkages, mm -hmm. uh, with the, the big germ being the United States in many respects. Uh, the contagion is, uh, but then they ended. They've just been done since for 15 years now. Um, so you've got sort of a life cycle of a, of a bad neighborhood that sees being mm -hmm. bad, at least in that sense. Right, right. Um, yeah, that's an interesting case. Um, we can think of lots of reasons why these were linked but why did they stop? Yeah. And so part of the explanation is, is obviously the Cold War. At the end of the Cold War, then the Soviet Union was no longer willing to provide all the material support for client governments. And in fact, you see something of the same with the Cubans, that once the Cubans started feeding stuff for cash, they were no longer able to uh, send troops to Africa and so on. But I think another part 
that's maybe equally important is that one of the things that changed was not just that they lost support, that the rebels lost support from the from the patron, but the government side um, also had to change their political strategy relative to the rebels. Initially, many governments in the region, um, and I mean, there, w- there was some conflict there between sort of the moderates that said that they should negotiate with the rebels and the hardliners who, who favored a... a um, a uh, strict armed struggle in countries like El Salvador that was quite prominent. And so one of the interesting things that happened around that period was um, that both the rebels and the government seemed to converge on more of a nego- negotiation strategy. And <clears throat> in, in our data, we tried to identify um, some features that might help us look at the substitution between violent and political strategies. And one of the things that seems to be quite important is in those cases where the rebels have a political wing and the government is willing to legalize it, that typically occurs um, occurs conflict termination. Now, some people might say that, well, this is exactly what we think democracy is about. But if you look at the data, then it turns out that this doesn't overlap very well with measures of democratic institutions. So we have some cases of democratic countries such as Turkey, which um, not only refused to uh, have any negotiations with the rebels, but they also ban any orga- organization that they feel is in any way associated with Kurdish separatism. Um, and <clears throat> I would think that a situation where you drive people on the ground and make it harder to negotiate politically would be more likely to be associated with violence. But you also can think of outcomes that go the other way, like in South Africa, for instance, the government... Um, they lifted the ban on the ANC long before it introduced multi-party elections. Yeah, co-optation is not only a democratic strategy. Uh, yeah, but it raises also some question, I think, about the war on terrorism. That should you drive people on the ground and should you drive into weak states or, or, or should you try uh, strategies to negotiate? Al-Qaeda might be a strange case since it's not... We talked about this morning, what are their policy goals and how, if at all, could, would you negotiate with them? But there's certainly other cases of, of rebel organizations like ETA and the IRA and so on, where you could imagine ways to facilitate political outcomes over, over one things. I have a feeling we kind of got this plug pulled. Um, if so, sorry we missed you, Charles, and if not, thank you for joining us, everybody at Wisconsin and um, Illinois. Thank you as well. Appreciate it. Thank you again for inviting me.